0: You're listening to episode number 13 of Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. Today we are discussing directive and participative decision-making between clinicians and patients and families. We are fortunate to have Dr. Glenn Elwin with us, a professor at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice and developer of OptionGrid, a patient decision aid. And also with us is Ben Moulton, President and CEO of InformEd Consulting and a health policy expert. It's a lively, interesting, and informative conversation, so stay tuned. Welcome to the Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast. We're so grateful you've joined us today. I'm Tracy. And I'm Michelle. We've been interprofessional partners in healthcare for over 30 years. During that time, we've been engaged in healthcare transformation and the development of healthy healing work cultures that result in the best places to give and receive care. We've engaged with healthcare leaders from across North America, and we are tired of seeing time, money, and resources wasted on change efforts that are not sustainable. In this podcast, we explore significant, reoccurring,
1: and competing challenges faced by all healthcare leaders today using a brand new lens called polarity thinking, the missing logic in healthcare. You could say we represent the money ball of healthcare. We're here to expand your current thinking and challenge your reliance on problem-solving tactics. It's Tracy and Michelle. Welcome back. We have actually a mediocre podcast for you today. Very funny. (laughs) Just teasing. We just did that because we're always saying we have a great episode for you today because we think they're all great. They are.
0: And this one is very great. It is. It's another exceptional podcast. That's right. I had the privilege of meeting our guests in work I have been doing with EBSCO Health, and they are so amazing, these two individuals. I'm like, you have to be on our podcast.
1: Yeah, and today we're talking about direct decision-making and shared decision-making and really in relationship to person-centered care.
0: Yeah, so our guests are Glenn Elwin, who is a physician and researcher, and Ben Moulton, who is a lawyer and a patient advocate. Yeah. What a combo.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I really, really enjoyed this interview. I mean, I enjoy all our interviews, but I I, yeah. I really enjoyed this one because I felt like I learned so much from these two guys. I mean, they expanded my thinking. They helped me to really understand the complexity around this. So it was really fascinating. I know our, I know our listeners are going to really like it, too. It's such an important topic. And, you know, there isn't really anybody who can't benefit from this episode, right? Leaders to learn more about what this really means and what's needed, you know, clinicians to understand it even mm-hmm. themselves, right? Because this is this is a different way of doing things, right? And we're not always trained to do it this way. And then the recipients of care, just to, to understand the dynamic themselves
0: and how they can participate. I think I think it's just going to be fabulous. Yeah, it is, and it's an important polarity because it's a significant shift that's happening in healthcare right now, and uh, we are really focusing on patient-centered care. And so, how we engage them in decision making is really important. And as we know, it wasn't always that way.
1: Yeah. So as we
0: really move into being the caregiver that does unto the patient family, this is really discovering how we can engage with them and why it's in such an important tension to leverage in healthcare today. Yeah. And and how they can engage with the clinicians too, right? Because it's that both and. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So let's share a little bit about our guests today. Tracy, sure. you want to introduce Glenn? I'd love to. Glenn Elwin is a
1: clinician, a researcher, and an innovator. Wow. And he is an innovator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he is a tenured professor at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice in the United States. And at the Scientific Institute for Quality of Healthcare Care, Radboud University, Nemogen Medical Center, the Netherlands. Now, you just have to know, I don't even know if I said that right, but I was trying. <laughs> just know that if you're listening, Glenn, I was trying. <laughs> he's also a visiting professor at the University College London in the UK and an honorary chair at Cardiff University in the UK. He leads an international interdisciplinary team examining the implementation of shared decision-making into clinical settings. And he actually developed Option Grid and patient decision aids, right, which that's Mm -hmm. what that is. Mm -hmm. And those are evidence-based tools, and they empower people to choose the care that suits them best. And that was actually licensed to EBSCO Health in 2017. So he has developed the observer option and the collaborate measures of shared decision making. He is like really into this and he's excellent. And he, um, you know, he's also a lead editor of the shared decision making evidence-based patient choice book. Wow. Impressive. Yeah. And he's just a great guy. Really easy to talk to, too. Loved talking to you.
0: Glenn. <laughs> yes. And so now let me tell you a little bit about Ben. Ben is president and CEO of Informed Consulting, which is focused on shared decision-making, patient safety, risk management, informed consent, and improving patient-centered care. Ben is... Uh, He's very involved with legislative policy to advance adoption of shared decision-making in federal and state law, as well as ACO regulations and meaningful use. Him and I share a passion for policy, and I think that's what drew us together. He's also a recognized expert on informed consent, patient safety, and medical liability issues. Ben has extensive experience as general counsel in both academic medical centers, teaching hospitals, and university settings. And what I love about Ben is his passion for shared decision-making is just palpable. Oh, it is. It right? is. And
1: you're going to feel it through the airwaves. <laughs> you know, they did a really great job of helping us to understand the complexities around this particular clarity and, and some of the influencing factors, I think, that are supporting and hindering the advancement of it. And so I just want to, before we enter, you know, turn it on, you can really hear them talk, What I want to say is, you know, when we talk about polarities, we're talking about interdependent pairs and we like to give equal attention to both, right? Because both are necessary. But in this particular conversation, we're a little bit going to be a little bit more focused on the shared decision making because we've got two awesome experts and this is a big shift. And so we want to make sure people are informed and knowledgeable and really get a deeper understanding around this poll. Uh, we've got a pretty good handle on the directive decision making poll. <laughs> we've been <laughs> yes. doing that a long time, but this is new and different and there's a lot happening and we wanted to make sure people could learn. So just wanted to make sure. You knew we were being intentional about that. That's right. All right. Without further ado, let's hear from Glenn and Ben.
0: Well, welcome Glenn and Ben. This is Michelle. And I have to say, I just like the way that rolls off my tongue. I know. Glenn and Ben.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. We're so excited to be with you today.
0: Yes. And as you know, Tracy and I live in Western Michigan, and we always like to start with some, you know, fun conversation about where you're from and what's happening in your neck of the woods. So, uh, Glenn, let's start with you and kind of share with us where you live and what you've been focusing on this summer.
2: Uh, Well, it's yeah. Neck of the woods is a good term, actually, because I live in deep Vermont, um, uh, as you know, um, and I'm just watching the cloud here, um, uh, hoping for no rain because I've got hay on the ground and that's worrying me, actually.
0: Yes. Got to watch that weather. And uh, Ben, I know that you live in the beautiful Marblehead, Massachusetts. So tell us something about your favorite thing of living there.
3: So um, I live in Marblehead, and um, I think the, the prominent feature of living here is uh, the ocean. So um, sailing, fishing, swimming, kayaking, paddleboarding. Um, and I step out the front door, and I can smell the salt air. So um, my son took off this morning at 5.30, and I just checked. And he's about five, six miles offshore fishing for uh, stripers.
0: Oh, that sounds wonderful. Oh, it does. I can just see it like I can yeah. picture it in my mind. <laughs> awesome, yeah, well, Tracy and I are excited because we're spending Saturday on lake michigan that's our that's our ocean in our neck of the woods. <laughs> it looks like an ocean, <laughs> yeah, it does. well, we are so grateful to have you both on our podcast. We know that you are both so committed to creating high-quality, patient-centered care. You've dedicated much of your life's work to it, and you have very unique expertise and perspective on this topic. Glenn being a physician and a researcher, and Ben being a lawyer and a patient advocate in health policy. So two very important perspectives on today's topic. And we all know that decisions need to be made every day, every hour, every minute. I mean, Tracy, when I think about all of our time caring for patients, you are constantly making decisions. Oh, yes. And it's important for clinicians to know and leverage the latest available evidence. And we really want the best judgment for our patients, too, in helping them make decisions. In fact, Tracy and I, we've spent much of our career really educating clinicians about evidence-based practice, helping them implement evidence-based tools at the point of care, and we um, really refer to the gold standard definition by Sackett et al., that it's the integration of best research evidence with clinical expertise, patient values, and preferences. Oh, yes. So it's the clinical research that's available out there, also our expertise, but that critical component of the patient's preferences and values is a very important part of that as well. Yeah, it is. It
1: is, Michelle. And, you know, the thing here, too, is it's so important to have the patients and families engaged in that decision making. That's how those values and preferences come to light. And how they can be leveraged in making really great decisions that serve the patients and families, uh, you know, and, and balancing that evidence and that expertise with that ability to say, but this is what I value most, this is what's important to me, and this is what's meaningful to me, and how do we blend these two things to come to the right decisions and, and um, you know, move on the, the correct path, right, that's going to serve me uh, as a human being, a patient, and it's this tension between the two, right? That's like really a crux polarity in healthcare, and it's that kind of directive decision making and the shared decision making components. So it is a both and, and we're really, you know, of course, we are advocating for that kind of shared decision making uh, piece, um, but we know that a part of shared decision making. Is directive decision making, right? They go hand in hand. And so that's just kind of the conversation we want to have today. And let's talk a little bit about what that means and what that looks like and you know what the positive outcomes are of both. And um, you know, in this particular polarity that can show up in a lot of different contexts sure too, can. right? We're talking right now about you know, providers and patients and families in shared decision making and directive decision making. But it shows up in healthcare organizations or organizations at large, right, between management and staff. Um, it shows up, um, you know, in shared, you know, a lot of times organizations will implement shared governance to kind of bring this to light, to blend the two, right, to have some combination of both. Right. Um, and then, <laughs> of course, on a personal level, right, there's some shared decision making and directive decision making when it comes to marriages <laughs> and uh, parenting, right? Right. So we kind of, we all live this in some regard. uh, And uh, so it's kind of a universal piece. But today we're going to focus on uh, really patients and providers um, and the clinicians in healthcare and and using, uh, leveraging this polarity for the best of all. And, um, when we talk a little bit about the context of this, we always like to kind of give some, some more specific context. So when we say these words, people know exactly what we mean and what we're talking about. And so today, when we think about directive decision-making in our conversation, what we mean... Are those decisions that are really rooted uh, in the expertise and knowledge of one person? In this case, we're talking about the provider, right? And then when we talk about the shared decision-making components, we're really looking at those decisions that are rooted in a collective knowledge, not only the expertise, uh, knowledge of the clinician, but also the values, right, the beliefs, the needs of the patient's family Um, anybody that's involved in that decision making. And it really is kind of that process of communication, you know, where the clinicians and the patients work together to kind of make that those optimal healthcare decisions. So that's kind of what we're talking about. And predominantly, you know, we, we can't talk about where we're going without talking about where we've been. And historically, right, the provider was the one with the answers, right? From a patient family perspective, we went there, tell me what's wrong with me, tell me what to do. And we put all our faith and, you know, a kind of that subordinate relationship, I mean, that's just historically where we've been and the provider had the answers, right? And they directed where the care was going to go and we followed that direction. And it's just, that's just who we've been historically. Um, and so we've kind of experienced some of the downsides of that, right? Which has moved us to really giving a lot of emphasis and really understanding the value of that shared decision-making peace. And so um, we're going to talk a lot today about how we're strengthening that nationally, what your experiences are that with tools and processes and things that can really help support that. Um, and we just, it just couldn't be any better than to have the two of you with us today to have that conversation.
0: Absolutely. So, Tracy did a great job of describing kind of like where we've come from, and now we really want to hear from the two of you and what your experiences have been, and Glenn, I'm going to start by you, and I'm going to focus on directive decision making and ask you some questions, and I'm going to ask you a few questions, and then we'll kind of back up and take them one at a time. Does that sound good?
2: Yeah, sounds good.
0: Off we go. Off we go. So first of all, we really want to um, inquire with you that as a provider, if you can really share with us some positive experiences and outcomes you've had with directive decision making and also ask you, when do you see directive decision making to be relevant and important in patient-provider relationships? Um, So again, really pulling out that uh, directive um, aspect of decision making And then um, what are some other ways to strengthen directive decision-making for providers from your experience? Like what has helped you um, on that particular neutral pole of uh, offering some direction to patients and families? So take it away.
2: Right. Well, there's a great set of questions. Um, I I want to admit, first of all, that I'll probably come at this uh, by saying that um, my bias, if you like, is towards sharing decisions where possible. But there are definitely situations where it's necessary to be directive um, and also people want to be directed, if you like. They want clarity. So I'm just going to go over those situations where it's very clear that um, it's good to be using directive decision making. Um First of all, everybody would agree, I think, that if you've got an unconscious patient or somebody who is really not able to make a decision for themselves, then you have to use your um, uh, ethical and moral compass to say what is in the best interest of this person who is unconscious or who's unable to advocate for themselves. So that's very clear. There are other situations as well, I think, where people have become very ill Um, and very anxious, and very distressed. And they say to doctors, and commonly say to doctors and other people in healthcare professions, you know what, Uh, thank you for giving me some choices here, but I just don't know what to do. Um, I'm confused, um, I'm fearful, um, I'm insecure, I want some guidance. Um, So please, please, Tell me what you would do and what you would do for your family member. Um, and I think it's perfectly legitimate to respect that and to be uh, guiding people. There's another bit of a gray zone, I think, where you want to be probably doing directive decision making, where the evidence is very strong that it's in the best interest of the patient to do something. Um, you've had a myocardial, in fact, um, you need to be doing um, or you've had a stroke. You need to be getting that clot buster in there pretty quickly. Or you use the best medication to get people over a heart attack as quickly as possible and free of pain. You don't want to be asking them, would you like this or not? Um, because the evidence is so strong that that is in their best interests. Um, So having said those things, those caveats, where I think it's very reasonable to be directive, where people want it, where people can't make decisions for themselves, they don't have decisional capacity in the jargon, if you like. Um, All the evidence um, in guidelines is so strong that you wouldn't really question it if you want the benefit of modern medicine, as it were. Having said all of those situations... Medicine these days is full of situations where there are more and more choices. And the reality is that some choices have more harms than benefits, and some choices have more benefits than harms. And often people in healthcare professions take shortcuts. They say, oh, I think this patient would benefit from this. And they don't mention the other options. And so therefore, they don't mention the harms and benefits and they don't allow that person or their family to consider the trade-offs between option a and option b and that's okay sometimes um it can make a very reasonable choice sometimes and um, everything is okay but there are situations where if you do that and somebody realizes a few months or a few years later why didn't they mention the other possibility People get very angry, get very upset, they go to lawyers, they litigate and so on. So I think this is why shared decision making has come to the front line. If you don't share that there are reasonable options, people will get angry and upset, um, and rightly so. So um, I would argue therefore that um, you can use tools like guidelines and care pathways to do directive decision making where appropriate. But more and more often, you probably need to be using tools that help you do shared decision making. And every healthcare professional in every profession needs to be aware of those tools that are arriving now, slowly but surely. So I'm going to pause there and see how you react to that answer.
0: Oh, that was a great answer, Glenn. Um, Just in such Great points, even about polarities, because you've really brought out that it isn't an and in both. We need both. And um I think your examples of the upside of directive decision making were absolutely excellent. Um, so I think that's really, really valuable. And and even with the downside of, you know, too much focus on directive decision making, that yeah, even years later there can be negative outcomes as a result of that. So I thought those were really great examples. I was sharing with Tracy this morning that before our um, interview, and Ben knows this story, um, I actually listened to a recorded conversation I had with my um, father's um, hematologist, who he has a history of AFib, and he um, started to bleed, and he was in the hospital, and we had to make a decision whether to continue moncumidin. And it was an ex- it was in listening to that conversation again because we actually recorded it so we wouldn't forget as a family the decision that we made. It was very directive on the physician's part. He covered all the evidence of us. We went through all the risks, all the benefits, and then together we made a decision as a family. In this case, not to continue the kumadin because um, it was he was too much at risk for bleeds. Um, but I just really valued, and it was really great to go back and re-listen to that. Um, that it is looking at both the, you know, the risks and the benefits when you're making these decisions. But how much I valued him doing all the legwork of sharing the evidence based on evidence based tools, and it was it was very very helpful.
1: Yeah, I and I think uh, I think your point too, Glenn, about tools. Right. Again, going back to kind of my comments earlier. We, we've had this history where we haven't had to do this, right? Or we ha- it hasn't been prominent in our practices, and so you know, as I'm as if I'm a provider and I'm sorting through the evidence, right? And I'm I'm looking at what I believe is in best interest. Having a tool to help me communicate my Critical thinking around that to the extent that patients and families can understand it, of course. I think it's really helpful. I really appreciate that, you know, there are tools, just like there's tools to drive the evidence, there's tools to help us um, communicate the choices that we're trying to give patients or why we're why we have a preference for a specific choice that, you know, we're preferring they make or that we're recommending that they make uh, in another word. So I, I really appreciate that as well. I thought you did a great job of explaining that because I think this is a little bit hard to get your head wrapped around. So great job. Thank you.
2: And I'm just going to give you two examples of those very briefly. Um, Imagine, A woman who's just been diagnosed with breast cancer, early breast cancer. Um, Immediately, there are two surgical choices that face that woman. Having just the lump taken out um, with radiotherapy for a few weeks afterwards. And then the second option is having a mastectomy where more of the breast is taken out, clearly. Now, if you're a young woman where the cosmetic result is really important to you and your preservation of your body shape is something of a high priority, that set of preferences will determine choice. But if you're more elderly and you don't want to worry about radiotherapy for six weeks and all the transport if you live in a remote area, then maybe, and increasingly, um, women are choosing to have mastectomy in those situations, and the choice is really determined by the preference, because the the survival outcomes are no different between these choices. And so as soon as you hear there's no difference in survival, then the other issues come to light. And the tools, again, I'm just looking at a tool that we've made here about osteoarthritis, You know, how likely is maybe using non steroidals like um, uh, Brufen, or what do you call them in the the United States? Um, What do you call Brufen here? Um,
3: Ibuprofen.
2: Ibuprofen, what do you call that? Um, What do you call that?
3: Tylenol. Uh,
2: Tylenol, no, no, Tylenol. It's not
3: Tylenol. Advil.
2: Advil, that's right, Advil. So I'm just looking at a tool here um, to compare treatments for osteoarthritis. And so if you use a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory like Advil, 66 out of 100 people get benefit. If you do an arthroscopy, where many people do just for knee arthritis, only about 10 people improve. And if you do a total knee replacement, about 83 people improve, but a, a major operation. So giving these numbers to people about how many people improve helps ground the conversation in fact, rather than just some vague, oh, this is better than the other, as it were. So these kinds of tools are really important for clinicians because they help them give some facts to patients. And then the most important thing to do after you give the data, the facts, is to stop and listen to how people react to those facts.
1: So so again, historically, right, we've had, you know, I think you did a great job of laying out the Positive outcomes associated with the kind of the directive decision making. We know we've kind of lived in the downside of over focusing on that, right? Which was right doing unto patients and and families and patient members unclear about their role and preferences not being considered, right? And uh, and poor decision making really on the behalf of of the patient. Um, so this movement with these tools um, to this shared decision-making, um, you know, poll, so to speak, um, I think that's just, you've just laid out some really great examples of where that becomes very important and how we can leverage tools to do that. Um, now, let's hear a little bit from you, Ben, and um, tell us, let's talk a little bit about the positive outcomes of this shared decision-making and a little bit more about that. And tell us a little bit about your journey Um, in advocacy for patient safety and shared decision-making. Share a little bit more with our audience about that. I'd love to hear more.
3: Sure. So um, I was working uh, as the executive director of the American Society of Law, Medicine, and Ethics, which is a nonprofit at Boston University Law School. And I was uh, the co-author on a law review piece, which was entitled Rethinking Informed Consent, uh, The Case for Shared Decision-Making. And anytime Glenn or I make a reference, we'll put this material in your note-sharing section of this podcast so I can provide for you this article. But it was an opportunity to look very deeply at how we in the United States have constructed our informed consent law So let me briefly give you um, where we were and what's happened. So um, starting in the 50s and rapidly spreading, rapid for the law, in the early 70s, all states adopted a a right to informed consent, common law right. And it broke into two camps. One was the physician-centered informed consent, which is you give the information that an average qualified physician would give to a patient under like or similar circumstances, or a patient-centered informed consent standard, which is you give the information that an objective patient would want under like or similar circumstances. And the divide in the states is almost equal with more in the physician-centered standard. And that gave me an opportunity to look back at shared decision-making, which was the first time it's used, is in a 1982 presidential commission on the legal and ethical implications of informed consent. And in the Law Review article, I I argue, along with my co-author, Jamie Staples King, that the true uh, objective for informed consent should be shared decision-making, because that allows us to get at the personalized information that you as a patient would want. And whether it's the physician standard, because we know physicians do not practice in a standard similar pattern, you can have great variation uh, even in a state. Um, And because there is no such thing as an objective patient, how you value risks and benefits will differ from the way I do, why don't we give patients what they need and want, which is an articulation of risk, benefits, and alternatives that are personalized for them. And so I've come up with the term for this, which is called perfected informed consent. And that led me on the journey to say, you know what, this is something that everybody, every patient should have, uh, particularly as it pertains to what is commonly referred to as preference-sensitive conditions. And those are conditions where there is more than one treatment modality with about the same morbidity and mortality. And as Glenn has referenced, if you don't take the time to make sure patients understand what their choices are, how do you ever know that you're giving this patient the right care and treatment for them that reflects their values and preferences? I would argue you don't. And that's why we should embrace and adopt shared decision-making as an ethical clinical imperative. So uh, that's how I started my journey, still at it. Um, And it's something which uh, is a challenge, but when it's done well, and there are numerous pockets around the United States where it's done well, uh, the benefits for both the provider and the patient are uh, dramatic. Uh, There are win-win situations. So you asked also, uh, Tracy, what are the benefits? So, you know, and there are 115 randomized controlled trials. And again, we can give you the site for this. So it's increased knowledge uh, on on the part of the patient, which is considered, at least from a legal perspective, one of the uh, gold standards that we reach for more accurate expectations of benefits and risks by the patient, improved alignment of treatment choice with their values and greater participation in the decision-making. There is a study which I would commend, and we can again put this up on the share notes, uh, that talks about the patient perspective. You know, how do patients feel? about uh, shared decision-making done well. And it's an article that's in uh, Health Affairs in 2013, an article um, on a group health survey of patients. And it's the, as far as I know, it's the largest survey of patients ever conducted on shared decision-making. And uh, let me just quickly tell you what the results were. Uh, so, Group Health uh, actually surveyed over 2,200 patients. Uh, and this was uh, one of their pilots that they did, and it dealt with patient satisfaction. So, patients responded uh, 94 to 96% approval rating, which uh, was the highest survey results, uh, one of the highest in Group Health's history. Uh, so, they were asked and they said that um, shared decision-making helped them understand their health condition, help them understand their treatment choices for their health condition, help them understand what is most important to them when thinking about treatment choices for health conditions, and help them prepare to talk with their healthcare provider about treatment choices. And I would submit that's what we want day in and day out in clinical encounters.
1: Wow. That's really that's just so cool. I I love to hear all that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, I think the other thing too. you, although I don't think you mentioned this directly, I think I read um, also just even, you know, it can help alleviate, um, you know, when you get a when you get a diagnosis, sometimes that can be can be kind of depressing, right? It can give you this. Yeah, it can give you a sense of hopelessness to helplessness, right? And I think this this shared decision making process and the things you're talking about, what came to me is it's really about empowerment, uh, right? And engagement, and um, and how that can lift people up as they're going through some of the mo- maybe the most challenging times um, in their lives,
3: right? Correct. And you know uh, the barriers here are we don't train physicians. In shared decision making, communication. Some med schools, such as Dartmouth, do. Um, it's hard to do. It's not easy. Um, and you know, we should uh, train uh, providers. We should give them the tools to be successful, such as high quality decision aids, which gets us into issues of certification, making sure that you know we have acceptable standards. And we need to pay providers for doing shared decision making. So uh, I'd like to see a world where we're assessing quality in terms of whether or not shared decision making has occurred. So um, we can talk about that a little bit later in the podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great that's a great idea to to actually integrate these things into these other um, components. And I think in addition to the physicians not being trained, we, you know, the tools to prepare patients and families, right? To give them permission, right? To say, well, you, you are invited in. It's an invitation to be a part of it, to be an equal partner in the whole process, I think is a you know, again, the polarity, right? (laughs) The other, uh, the other pole in that dynamic, in that relationship, right? Between the individual and really team, because now we're a team. It's not just, you know, provider and patient, but it's provider and patient family together, right, as a team in identifying the go-forward strategies for care.
2: I wonder I wonder um, if I could just build on that. Um, I don't know um, if you've ever uh, had a situation where you've had a family member in, in intensive care, for example. Um, but if you have, it's really one of the most difficult situations, Um Imagine somebody that you, um, is very close to you being on a ventilator, for example, um, and it, it, it's not a short-term issue. It's just they've ended up on a ventilator because they were struggling to breathe and they've got a serious illness where actually um, uh, the prospects for uh, them are not very good. What a difficult decision this is. Um, The person who's on the ventilator is usually sedated and can't advocate for themselves. And then it falls to the family to make such a tough decision. And often the uh, team in the intensive care unit don't know what to do and how to raise this topic. So we've created a tool for them to just to maybe not talk to the patient because they're, they're unconscious usually um, or sedated and, and unable to make a decision. But imagine hearing about what it would be like to stop the ventilator or stay on the ventilator. And we've just made a simple comparison, what we call it, an option grid, to compare being on the ventilator with what if we stop the ventilator. And, you know, one of the things that people aren't clear about is that if you stop the ventilator, most people live up to one hour. That's it. Um, and most people, vast majority, uh, don't live more than a day. But if you are ill, seriously ill in intensive care, and you stay on the ventilator, most people will be uh, dead within a month. That's the maximum you can hope for. If you're really seriously ill and dependent on the ventilator. And if you stay on the ventilator, um, most people get very confused, 90% get anxious, and over half get bed sores in those four weeks of the end of life. So when those issues become clear to a family situation, then the choice is made a little bit easier, I think, to say it's futile maybe to stay on a ventilator when the future is so bleak. But yet these conversations are not occurring because people don't want to have them and they haven't got the tools to be honest and transparent about what the future holds. So it's not just simple decisions about whether to take Coumadin or have this surgery. It's these end-of-life situations where shared decision-making really adds value, where the cost is often enormous, but the quality of life it goes down and down and down the more you do. And so these are important tools for sensitive issues.
0: Yeah, Glenn, thank you for that example. And what's really clear to me is the significant role that decision aids have in shared decision making. So, can you just tell us a little bit more about um, your engagement with decision aids and what you've been learning about? Um, and I think the example you gave was really a good one, but the significant role they have in this mutual decision between family members and providers and patients and providers?
2: I'm happy to. Uh, I've been at this for a few years, as you know. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What I've learned, I think, is that it's important to keep them pretty simple. It's also important to keep them in language that people can understand. And we make the tools that we make uh, readable by people of the sixth grade, which is around 11 years of age. And it's important to include some numbers, but not too many numbers, so that people have facts on front of them. The next thing is that the use of these tools is not shared decision making. They're only catalysts you have to actually have the right attitude to use them. You have to be prepared to use them and share them with people and talk about them because people can't use these on their own, typically. They get too frightened or too anxious. So what I would say is that these tools are excellent, but then they're uh, insufficient on their own. You need attitudes and skills and motivation. And that's one of the challenges we've got in healthcare at the moment is that, and Ben has alluded to this, is that the incentives to use this or to take this approach are pretty minimal at the moment. And actually, most healthcare practitioners will tell you hey, if I do shared decision making, I'm going to lose income. Actually, people are going to decide to do things that I actually make a fee from, you know, like a knee surgery or an endoscopy or whatever. So even the incentives are against us, not even neutral. Um, so it's really tough to get this kind of approach used and implemented into practice. But thankfully, policy at uh, um, CMS um, and DHSS and so on are changing slowly, but pretty slowly, I think.
1: What, what would you say is the uptake? Like, I'm curious, um, you know, I, I really resonated with your, your example around the ICU, both Michelle and I really like, she's an ICU nurse. I, I'm a respiratory therapist, right? I, I can't tell you how many times I've been the one to turn off the ventilator, right? And, um, and never had tools like this to, or seen anybody use a tool like this to have a conversation with the family um, and just, but have experienced the distress of the patients and or you know the family members for the patient and in, in trying to make this very difficult decision to have some sense of hope, faith, and yet know scientifically you know uh, medically what what you know potentially you're facing. Um, so w- what is the uptake of this kind of tool?
2: Well, and I think Ben can talk a bit to this. It's patchy some pioneering organizations are are using them and integrating them into their electronic health record and that is important because if it's not in the software that clinicians use they're unlikely to reach out to them so but these are pioneering examples like um uh, Kaiser Permanente in Seattle, for example, um, uh, Boston, uh, Mass General is a unit in Mass General that are using these kind of tools. Um, uh, there are other examples, but the, and Dartmouth has been using these kind of tools for many years. But these are pioneering examples. Um, it's, it takes a commitment of a leader and a leadership executive group to make this part of the mission of an organization. And I think they need to be taking their middle management and clinical leaders with them. It's a tough journey because many people say we haven't got time, uh, the tools are not available, um, these, and they also say the tools don't reflect what we do locally. And they have an argument about the content often. So there are many kind of um, barriers that people put up. But as I think policy is slowly changing to say to get um, uh, to the highest quality of care, you need to use what Ben calls certified patient decision aids. You need to integrate them into your electronic health record. That is the direction of travel. So if people want to be ahead of the curve, that's where they need to be.
0: Yeah, and Tracy and I can really relate to that example as well, Um, having, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, help people implement evidence-based tools at the point of care within the electronic health record. It's one thing to implement a tool, and it's a whole other thing to transform a culture and practice, which is what you're bringing forward, that it's really changing the culture, changing the practice, and we have to have them integrated into the workflow, yes, and it's more than that. So um, those are really, really great examples. And I know that you're trying to take this from a few great exemplars into a standard of care. And that does take a lot of great effort.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, Ben, do you want to comment? You've been uh, at this sure. for a few years now.
3: Huh? Yeah, just a few. <laughs> um, Over. Oh, <laughs> so... Uh, Policy, I think, is where it's going to change culture. And I, I what Glenn's alluding to is you really need cultural buy-in and lead, and, and provider leadership. Uh, and so the examples he were he was giving, which is Kaiser, Dartmouth, um, Mass general, and there are others, Mayo, um there's UNC, they're they're scattered uh University of Colorado, they're scattered across the country. And one of the um elements they all have is commitment by physician leadership uh to realize that practicing medicine this way is a win for providers and a win for patients. And ultimately that is gonna be something that will give organizations of care a competitive advantage. Um So what's going on in the policy space is at the state level, Washington state has promoted uh, shared decision-making and has been at it. I like to consider them to be the tip of the spear uh, for well over a decade. They um, legislatively created a pilot. Uh, They even created the incentive uh, for providers to use certified decision aids by saying that if you do, informed consent through a certified decision aid, and if you document it uh, in the medical record that, you know, uh, the provider on this day with the patient uh, reviewed this particular certified decision aid, there will be um, under law created a rebuttable presumption that informed consent has been given and understood. Um, The state also took it upon itself, because uh, there wasn't any action at the federal level uh, to authorize the uh, medical director of the healthcare care authority uh, to create criteria for certification of tools and to certify tools. And that's what's going on now. Um, there are over, I believe, 50, approximately 50 tools that have been certified in Washington State. Washington State used the IPDOS criteria. Uh, they kind of titrated it down to what they considered to be essential elements. It's uh, interesting to note that the National Quality Forum has taken those criteria and uh, for all practical purposes has adopted them as well in the NQF playbook and, cer- and uh, certifying criteria. And it's my hope that there will be a push Uh, to make uh, NQF the national certifying uh, organization. So um, if you, and again, there will be a link to this in our shared notes section, but I I think the NQF playbook is really important and is worth uh, a comment or two. So it's the first time that I'm aware of that shared decision-making is clearly defined. So, Let's be clear about this. If it's not defined, how do you ever measure it? Uh, So shared decision-making, this is right from the playbook. Shared decision-making is a process of communication in which clinicians and patients work together to make optimal healthcare decisions that align with what matters most to patients. Shared decision-making requires three components. Clear, accurate, and unbiased medical evidence about reasonable alternatives, including no medical intervention and the risks and benefits of each. Clinical expertise in communicating and tailoring that evidence for individual patients and patients' values, goals, informed preferences, and concerns, which may include treatment burdens. That's the definition. I think it's a good definition. And uh, I think also what you have going on at the CMS level is you have them realizing that there are certain conditions for which there should be mandated shared decision-making. So they are currently low-dose CAT scans for lung cancer screening, implantable cardio defibrillators, left atrial appendage closure, TAVR, which is trans-aortic valve replacement, and hepatitis C. And I think you're going to have more and more of that. Uh, You're going to have a push to require that shared decision-making occur. I would argue that the corollary also has to be there, which is if you're going to say you have to do shared decision-making, promote certification of tools which give patients and providers the understanding that they're using material that is conflict-free, free free of bias, evidence-based, and have been tested and validated with patients. So I'm hopeful that, you know, we're moving in the right direction. It will take a commitment, and as I said before, it is a win for patients as well as providers.
1: Yeah, you know, I just, I have one question that occurred to me, um, is, you know, when we're talking about you know, there's a lot of things that have to happen, right, to, to really make this the standard. And um, it seems to me, if we want to change practice, it starts with education. And so are, are these adopted in any academic settings where they're actually teaching clinicians, providers in their preparation phases to use tools like this?
2: Yeah. Um. Yes, a bit, um, but not deeply, I would argue. Um, uh, You know, medical curriculum or nursing curriculum, for that matter, is stuffed to the gunnels, right, with content. Um, Trying to get anything new in is really difficult. It's a political warfare, right, Um, trying to get new content into curriculum. I I mean, I agree with you that um, knowing the skills of how to use, um, well, how to communicate, first of all, the basics, and then how to use tools like this, um, that's important. I would argue, though, that many um, uh, people, when they come to train in professions, they're already kind of uh, switched on to doing compassionate, empathic care. That actually gets switched out of them as they see apprenticeship in real clinical situations. They become hardened, they become skeptical, they say uh, the, the workload on the burnout issues are so hard that they learn shortcuts from the other people they see around them. So in a way we've got an education system that defeats itself because the work is so hard when you have to do it in real life. The pressures are enormous. So I think we haven't created the culture or the workflows that allows this process to take place. So that questions to me whether or not you need to really realign organizations to say, we want patients and we want to earn good money for making high quality decisions. That's what we will um, live and breathe by. The current climate isn't aligned with that motivation at the moment. So that's a big issue for all of healthcare across the globe, not just in the U.S., but I know U.S. is a special circumstance, right?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I think that's a yeah. symptom of the mission margin
0: polarity, yeah. right? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good points. Good points.
0: Well, we're gonna wrap it up now, and this has been a phenomenal conversation. We could continue on forever and ever, but we do have to wrap up. And the the uh, phrase that's coming to my mind is uh, timing is everything. And I think this is a very timely topic for um, our podcast because I think you really have brought to light what the current realities are, you know, how we really do need to balance both of these. and um, certainly there's some hope right now with from a policy perspective and some organizations like NQF that are really putting some guidelines out there for um, for providers and for organizations to follow going forward. so was very insightful, and I want to thank both of you.
1: Oh, yes, very insightful. and i I think the word that comes to me is leadership. And um, I'm just so thankful there are individuals such as yourselves who are so clear on this and the value that it brings to the relationships between providers and patients to the quality of care and and what's necessary to really make it happen, right? and uh, and the need to then the next step, engage the leaders. In healthcare, that can really make this a reality. I I find it very hopeful myself. You know, I haven't had to, um, you know, uh, I haven't had a lot of healthcare challenges, right? Or had to really use the healthcare system, um, but to know that these things are on the way, that these things are being created to support. Um, my family members, myself, my children in the future, right? I think it's just very hopeful. And uh, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And for everything you've shared today, I learned so much. It was awesome.
2: Well, happy you. to do it. Yeah, thank you very much. To, to, happy to talk to you.
1: Yeah. Any Any words of wisdom or parting thoughts that you would want to share with our listeners?
3: Yeah, I would say that um, patients need to be educated Uh, It's a sort of demand, a shared decision-making experience to demand the use of high-quality certified decision aids. And providers need to be educated that um, we can't get to this high-quality patient-centered healthcare that's espoused either on the Republican or Democratic platform unless we embrace the benefits of shared decision-making it is low lying fruit it, it transforms the provider patient relationship it enhances the therapeutic alliance there is absolutely no reason why we shouldn't embrace it today so that would be my parting word
2: I, wonderful and, and yeah and i just add a little bit you know as you tracy suggested uh, we're lucky at the moment we're in good health there will come a time when we're not and then we will want somebody to treat us with respect. And that's the kind of health care we want.
1: Yeah. And I and I would add, I think, to that, too. I think it's such a powerful message. I have goosebumps. Um, is that, you know, we want to be able to do our part, too, as the patient. Right? Or the family member.
3: Yeah. Correct. I, I want to yeah. be prepared to show up, right, for myself. Pilot and co-pilot. In other words, patients are the co-pilot in that airplane called better health care, better clinical treatment. Pilot is the provider, but they're sitting up in the cockpit. And that's what we want. We want a system that values that, embraces it, and pays for quality decisions.
0: What a great analogy.
1: Here, here. Yeah. (laughs) Couldn't have said it better. Awesome. What a great way to end. Yes. Yeah. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for tuning in today. If you found our conversation insightful or helpful, please share this episode with others you think might benefit. Also, go out to iTunes and rate the show and share a review because we really like those positive ones. Wink, wink. You can access today's show notes and downloads at
1: www.missinglogic.com forward slash podcast. If you want to learn more about polarities in healthcare or how you might manage them in your organization, you can contact us for a free consultation. Just go to our website at www.missinglogic.com.